Hello church, Pastor Greg here, and if you are joining us for the first time, yes, my name is Greg and I am one of the pastors, and we are in the midst of a study of Jesus's inaugural sermon found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, called the Sermon on the Mount, and our series is called What About, and we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount and engaging all of the different passages. I will tell you as we start here, um, this sermon took me a while to put together to write, and it's pretty dense um, as I reviewed it in preparation. And so my encouragement to you would be to not, if you're a note taker trying to get everything that's said, don't, I'd say don't try and do that today. Uh, just listen, maybe take a few notes if that's your thing. I take, uh, I put together pretty comprehensive notes, and so you'll be able to find that. Maybe I'll even put it on, I'll put it on the blog um, uh, this afternoon, uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, so just relax, listen, uh, let God speak to your heart, uh, and let's see if we can find what God is saying to us as a country, as a church, and more specifically here in the Sermon on the Mount. I think you might be a little surprised at how Jesus is touching on some of the issues that are facing us today. So with that said, let me, let me pray, and then we'll jump in here. Kind Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together. I pray, like I always do, that you would be the primary teacher, instructor, that you would stir hearts, that you would illuminate your word, uh, that you would confront us where it's necessary, and that you would affirm and encourage us also. So we do give this time to you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. When I was in college, uh, I was able to rent a house with two other guys in a pretty nice neighborhood in town because of the generosity of a woman at the church that we attended. Uh, the thing was, the front yard, uh, the front lawn, had become pretty weed-infested. And so in the spring and in the summer, the weeds would grow uh, and our, our, our front yard would begin to look pretty undistinguishable to the rest of the houses in this nice neighborhood. We did, when we did manage to mow it, we fit in with the rest of the neighborhood, but only for a few days, right? And then it became apparent that we weren't as diligent about the long-term care of our lawn as our neighbors were. And, and so this picture that I've just described, I think, is an accurate metaphor for the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes we get content to deal with just the surface issues rather than dealing with the root causes of the issues. And we tend to cut off the weeds at the surface instead of going after the roots. Uh, for instance, in this, this, this concept related to the idea of conflict resolution, and perhaps you've heard the phrase, the presenting issue is rarely the real issue or is rarely the root issue. And what that means is that we do tend to deal with surface issues instead of root issues. We can get caught in dealing with just surface, surface, surface issues and never get to the real issue. And like 
a weed, when we cut it off at the surface, it only strengthens the root. And if the root is wrong, if the root is evil, then it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so this is also what we've been seeing in the news in the last couple of weeks. We've seen protests, we've seen calls for our country to revisit some of the underlying causes of systemic racism. I shared last week how I have needed to come to terms with my own racism by virtue of having grown up in the, in the context of institutional racism, of white privilege, and by the way, I, I added some definitions for that on the blog from last week. Uh, and these things, institutional racism and white privilege, are both in me and on me by way of growing up. And, that, and then on top of that is my own insensitivities. It took me about 30 years for this to begin to even dawn on me. And here, here, something I want to say about our current situation with an election coming up, let's not take the bait of political tribalism. I, with, with the election coming, I hope that we as a church can, can have some, some uh, forums where we discuss the issues, and, and Massachusetts has some pretty significant elections coming up in November as well. So I hope that we can, as a church, get together in a forum. Hopefully it's not Zoom. Hopefully we can be there in person in the fall. And, uh, and, and consider the issues and have a humble, prayerful dialogue that, that doesn't instruct us to vote this way or that way. I assume that we have Republicans in our church. I assume we have Democrats. I assume we have independents. And, and I, want, I want us to keep it that way. But anyway, let's not take the bait of political tribalism here. So the scribes and the Pharisees were content to deal with outward appearances instead of dealing with heart issues. And that's what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing here is, is he's seeking to deal with issues systemically, to use a current term, saying that, that the law is not just about outward or, or surface issues, but issues related to the heart, related to motive. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so today we're entering in a new chapter, a new unit, a new section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. We've already heard our passage read. Uh, so this would be a great time to review uh, where we've been so far. An important goal for us, I think, today is, is to locate ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount. We need to address our passage for today. Uh, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. But we also need to stay connected with the, the wider context of the whole chapter. Um, and so I want to do a review and a preview of that. And so that's what makes the sermon a little dense for today. So please forgive me. So chapter 5 had three major sections. The first section, of course, is the Beatitudes, which, which deals with the character of the Christian. Another way to think about this, and this is a little bit new for me, I read it in, in one of the commentaries, a newer commentary that I've purchased and stir my thoughts and imagination about this. Another way to think about the Beatitudes is Jesus is casting a vision for what the vital Christian life can look like. 
it's, it's visionary. We see a lot of visionary. Jesus is giving us perspective on what life can be as citizens of the kingdom of God. Uh, remember, there's an emptying and a filling with the first uh, four Beatitudes. Uh, the first four Beatitudes describe the what amounts to a conversion experience with the theological term being justification. We won't go into all that today, but uh, suffice it to say, poor in spirit, the, the essential admission that we have come to the end of ourselves, we don't have the resources to save ourselves. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to acknowledge our poverty of spirit. Those who mourn as we're honest about our sinful condition there's a grief, there's a repentance over our own condition as well as the injustice that, that grips our world. And that's apropos to uh, today as well. And, and then we become meek. And, and what's that mean? And when we grieve over our, our sin, when we grieve over the suffering around it, it, de- it develops in us a humble learning posture. And let's not forget that the word disciple means learner. So we become learners. And then there's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And we've talked about this before in previous sermons. But, but this righteousness, there's two aspects of righteousness. It's the justification piece uh, that, that causes us to be righteous, legally righteous by virtue of what Christ has accomplished. In, in this sermon the word righteous, it, it, it more reflects the desire in us, a response to God's grace, a response to God's gift of righteousness. A response is the desire to know, to love, and to serve God. It's our response of gratitude and worship for God awakening our heart to the grace of God. That's what this, and so we get a hunger and a thirsting and a thirst for righteousness. And then the final Beatitudes describe how we we grow in grace as citizens of the kingdom of God. And the theological term for this would be sanctification. That's a life. Justification is one time. Sanctification is lifelong. Another word that's often used here is transformation. Uh, And so we receive and then give away mercy. Receive God's mercy, then we, uh, God's mercy for ourselves, and we give it away. And mercy cleanses the heart and restores purity to our lives. And purity gives way to serenity and a true and joyful peace, which then empowers us to become makers of peace or peacemakers. And then we get persecuted. Living a life from a kingdom of God perspective will place us in conflict with those that oppose it. And oftentimes, as I've mentioned before, this is from within the church. The religious, the moralistic, uh, will oppose that. And then the second section of Matthew 5 is found in verses 13 to 16. It's the salt and light passage, which, like the Beatitudes, again, is visionary. Jesus is saying that this is your intended calling as citizens of the kingdom of God, to become salt, to become light in the wider culture. And then the third section in uh, chapter 5 is found in verse 17 through 48, deals with our relationship to the law. And Jesus, as I I spoke on this a while back, uh, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial and civil law, and we are therefore freed 
from their constraints. Yet God's moral law is still in effect. And so what is God's moral law? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, Matthew 22 tells us that Jesus summarizes the whole Old Testament law when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the what Jesus says, the whole law and the prophets. What we know is the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. So love God and love people. And, and this is underneath some, much, a lot, most of the protests that we've been seeing in the last few weeks, two weeks. And then chapter 5 concludes, verse 48, with a, what seems like just a crazy admonition. It's an admonition for us to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. What's that about? Sounds pretty impossible, right? What Jesus is saying here in this verse, it's a, it's a summarizing conclusion of the whole chapter. Uh, the idea behind that, the Greek word for perfect, teleos, is, is wholeness. It's integrity. God desires the internal to match the external. That's what Jesus is saying here. Let your heart match your actions. Let your heart catch up to your actions or your actions catch up to your heart. Either one. A better paraphrase for that verse 48 might be, therefore you shall be integrous as your heavenly father is integrous. Again, the goal is visionary. This is, this is Jesus saying, let's go there. Let's go there where your heart matches your actions. It's, it's not talking about moral perfection, but a wholehearted reorientation of our lives from the inside out. That is systematically, to use a word that, that we're currently hearing uh, in our country. And then a preview. We begin chapter 6. This next section, verses 1 through 18, deals with how we are to practice our righteousness or how we are to worship. Again, going back to the Beatitudes, righteousness is our worshipful response to the grace of God. So when he says practice our righteousness, it's, it's how we are to worship. And in these verses, we, we see activities of worship. One is generosity, one we'll talk a little bit about today. Almsgiving, I think the King James uses the word alms, uh, uh, but generosity or almsgiving is an act of worship. Prayer is an act of worship. Forgiveness, there's a little section we often leave out there after the Lord's Prayer on forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of worship. And, and then fasting, it's an act of worship. The, the New Living Translation uses the phrase, do your good deeds. And I think, if that's the translation that you're using, I think that's insufficient language because it, while, it, while it does involve deeds, it's actually more about worship. It's not about doing, it's about worshiping, and out of the worship comes the doing. And having said that, notice that none of those acts of righteousness have anything to do with singing or listening to sermons. 
It, it doesn't mean that singing, it doesn't mean that ser- sermons are not worship. It's saying that our personal worship is to include generosity. It's to include prayer. It's to include forgiveness. It's to include fasting. And theologians have several terms for these uh, worship practices or acts of righteousness, some that you might be familiar with, some might be new to you, but spiritual disciplines is a, a term that we hear a lot. Maybe you've heard it. Spiritual practices is another term. Another more theological term, and I think it's a good term, is means of grace. Means of grace. That these uh, activities, these worshipful activities, uh, worshipful responses are a means of grace. And what we're saying there, it's, it's not how we earn God's grace uh, by generosity and prayer and forgiveness and fasting, but they are how we receive God's grace. And that's so important for us to, to catch the distinction. It's, it's not how we earn grace. It's not how we please and appease God by those. It's how we receive the grace of God into our lives. Really, really important. Uh, contemporary theologian N.T. Wright. Some of us have enjoyed N.T. Wright for many years. This is how he, he says it. Covenant behaviors. That these are covenant behaviors. A new covenant is to love God and love people. And so what we'll see in the coming weeks is that these acts of righteousness invite us to find a consistent rhythm in our lives where we are generous regularly, where we do pray regularly. Um, and pray, Well, we'll get into that. Prayer is as much about listening as it is about talking. But anyway, we'll go there. Uh, pr- uh, consistent rhythms in our lives uh, for generosity and prayer and forgiving and fasting. Uh, well, these acts of righteousness, I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, uh, a commentator that I've so appreciated over the years, he says that these acts of righteousness are to nurture the soul, to nurture our piety, and to nurture our worship. So they, they help us, they come alongside of us. We receive God's grace in those areas, and, and then they help us to worship, to they refresh and nurture our soul. Anyway, uh, verses 19 to 34 are again visionary. They refer to the fruit of practicing our righteousness, which is the freedom from anxiety. And I think, I hope we pay attention to that. There's a lot of anxiety in my life, and I think in our nation. Uh, in the church and maybe in your life too, that we want to know God's peace, a Hebrew concept, shalom. Anyway, we'll go into that. So all of chapter six can be summed up in seven words. Put God first in everything that you do. Put God first in everything that you do. Now, that might be the the longest sermon introduction in history, um, and I apologize. I told you it would be dense, but I, I, I thought we needed to just review that in the context of what we're going through in our nation. Uh, so fortunately, the verses uh, that we want to look at today are pretty, I would even say very straightforward. So we've already looked at uh, chapter 6, verse 1. So let's review 
verses 2 through 4. I'll just read those. Um, did we get that on? It's not on the PowerPoint. Sorry about that. Uh, so when we give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by, it says men, but the Greek word anthropos means people, uh, honored by people, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, a couple things. Uh, hopefully that's open in front of you on your, on your device or a hard um, copy Bible. But sounding a trumpet before you, that's, that's hyperbole. Je Jesus actually uses a lot of hyperbole in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you remember, gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. That's hyperbole. Um, sounding a trumpet before, that, that's hyperbole. There's no evidence that, that the Pharisees or the scribes actually did that, had people sound trumpets before them. The idea of hypocrite, that's an old Greek word, an ancient Greek word that means actor, wearing a mask, putting on a mask that's there. The idea of reward, that word reward is used twice there, if I remember correctly, um, and is there, are there rewards in heaven? Are there going to be people, you know, closer to Jesus than others? Is, 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 is that how it's going to look like? And I was just thinking of the Revelation 19, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it, there doesn't seem to be any greater access uh, to Jesus than, than anywhere else. So I, I think the greatest reward is having our, our heart awakened to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel and that God has seen fit to invite us in to be part of his family. Do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Uh, what's that talking about? Well, it's, it's the goal of the, of the new covenant, love God, love people, and, and the new covenant generosity that Jesus is speaking of here is, is that it should become a reflex. That's what I think that's saying. It's, it's, your, your left hand doesn't, you know, it's not something that you have to think about. What's the, what's the difference between this and this? Uh, no, it's, it's just a reflect, our generosity is a, a, a reflect, a, a reflect uh, of what's already in our heart, not a promotion of ourselves. I hope you can see these are, are pretty straightforward, instructing us in the essential part of our, our personal and I think corporate worship, uh, generosity towards the poor. Um, a definition or distinction, I should say, that I've made over the, year, over the years is to seek to distinguish between the poor by choice and the oppressed poor. And I think that's where our country is beginning to rethink some of these things. Um, uh, the, the, the rich tend to get richer, the poor tend to get poorer. Uh, the talk, there's been talk for decades now about the shrinking middle class, and so maybe we do need to think a little bit more about what defines oppressed poor. I think that's worth our time uh, as a people, as a church, and as a country. Uh, when we speak of the oppressed poor, there's no doubt that, that some of us will disagree on the depths and the degree of systemic oppression of the poor in this country and around the world. But that's why we need to have 
forums, we need to talk about these things and in a humble, thoughtful, prayerful dialogue, which again, we need to go there. Um, and so what I'd like to do is to look at what Tim Keller says in his book. Uh, it's been out a few years now called Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. And, and in case you're thinking that he's some, you know, left-wing radical, he's, a, he, he's very conservative theologically. I don't know his politics. He tries to stay out of politics, which I think is very, very wise. But let's read a quote together. Or, um, I hope it'll be on there. I hope you can see it uh, from his book. Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. And I would highly, highly recommend this book. Here's what Keller says. The causes of poverty put forth in the Bible are remarkably balanced. One factor is oppression, which includes a judicial system weighted in favor of the powerful. God said, don't do that. We see that in Leviticus 19. 15. He talks about loans with excessive interest, which is addressed in Exodus 22, starting in verse 25. The Bible also speaks of unjustly low wages, Jeremiah 22:13 and James 5, 1 through 6. Ultimately, Keller says, however, the prophets blamed the rich when extremes of wealth and poverty in society appear. You can look at Amos 5, uh, Ezekiel 22, Micah 2, Isaiah 5. A great deal of the Mosaic legislation, Keller says, was designed to keep the ordinary disparities between the wealthy and the poor from becoming what he calls aggravated and extreme. Therefore, whenever great disparities arose, the prophets assumed that to some degree, it was the result of selfish individualism rather than a concern with the common good. Wow. Wow. The Bible specifically addresses what we are going through and I hope informs us as a church and hopefully as a country. Again, this is a place where the church can begin to articulate what scripture seems to clearly say. And topics like the depths of systemic racism, the depths of systemic oppression of the poor, that they're worthy of our ongoing prayerful, thoughtful, humble dialogue. And I certainly hope that we can do a lot more than just dialogue. Uh, I, I want us to get out there. I want us to come alongside of people, lost, broken people uh, to serve and to listen to their stories and, and ultimately to love them through with, with a heart uh, and some action. And I'm so grateful for our ongoing ministry to Haiti and to Liberia. I, I'd like us to up our ante there, people-wise at least, and we'll talk more about that. I hope we get there. I'd like to move us towards a conclusion. Uh, I'd like to provide for you four overlapping qualities of a generous life. Uh, and maybe some practical, we're running out of time, but maybe some practical ideas on how we can 
cultivate a generous heart. They're, they're overlapping, they're pretty straightforward, not rocket science. So let's take a look. Uh, number one, live a simple life. Live a simple life. Generous people look to simplify their lifestyles. Um, I think of Warren Buffett. Uh, beautiful example. The last time I noticed he was worth about $76 billion, and yet he lives quite simply and quite generously, I might say, in Omaha, Nebraska. And perhaps we can all consider areas that we can scale back in a bit, and this is a great opportunity to involve your children in this. Uh, I, I saw, this is years ago now, uh, an article about Kurt Warner. He was a, a quarterback for the, for the Rams, um, and they'd go out to dinner sometimes, and and he'd ask his kids, you know, um, who in here, who in this restaurant can, can we pay for their dinner? And the kids would look around and, and try and make a decision on who they could pay for. Now, all of us can't go out to dinner and pay for somebody else's dinner. But, but that's a great way to involve the kids in serving and noticing and looking uh, regarding generosity. And, and the second one would be live like everything is God's. Because you know, I would say uh, because it is. And uh, live like nothing is ours. Our, our houses, our cars, our RVs, our boats, our clothes, our digital devices, they aren't ours. It's only by God's grace that we have what we have. We're, we're simply stewards. We're simply managers of whatever God has graced us with. And maybe you've heard this. The real question is not, how much should I give? Maybe the underlying, the systemic question is, how much should I keep? Uh, and number three, live with an open heart. There are over 2,100 verses in the Bible that talk about God's heart for the poor. 2,100 verses in the Bible that speak of God's heart for the poor. And living with open hearts simply means that we develop, we, we cultivate a heart that's open to God's direction. Let's let, let's let the gospel sink deeply into our hearts so that, so that we have a heart like God's heart, uh, not like the world's heart. Uh, and then finally, the fourth one, live with open hands. Uh, living with open hands, it, it means that we have a loose grip on our earthly goods. Live a simple life. Live like everything is God's. Live with an open heart and live with open hands. So as we, as we close, I have a cautionary warning uh, for us as a church. With God pulling back the curtain, and I'm thinking back to mid-March, the COVID thing that pulls back the curtain on who we are uh, inside and how we've coped with this shelter-at-home season how we're coping with the, the protests, uh, systemic issues in our country. Uh, with God pulling back the curtain in, in areas like systemic racism, care for the poor, our own emotions that have surfaced in the last four months, there, there may be a temptation by some, and there has been, not in our, I'm not talking about our church, but out there in the church, a temptation for some to place social justice at the, at the very center of our agenda. And that would be a mistake. Uh, I've seen many churches make that mistake over the last, I don't know, specifically maybe the last 15 years. 
Uh, I, I'm thinking of, <clears throat> excuse me, this is more historic mainline churches, uh, what, what we might call the emergent church. Um, don't hear that term much anymore, but, but when we place uh, social justice at the center, I, we, we miss the goal. Social justice is the fruit, not the goal. What's the goal? The goal is the gospel. And here's how Jesus framed it in Luke 4, 18 and 19. I'm not going to teach this. I just want to show it to you just to remind you of what Jesus said he came to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, the good news to the poor. And now we know in light of the Beatitudes that, that it's not just uh, the oppressed poor uh, economically, but there's, we have, we're poor in spirit. And the gospel needs to go out to rich and poor alike who are, in fact, poor in spirit. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And, and, and that, that, that's real world stuff and, and, and also what's in our hearts. We're held captive by many things. Recovery of sight to the blind. That's those who, you could, sometimes people refer to that as the prodigals. You know, one time they could see and now, and now they can't. So recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. We'll talk more about that in our uh, prayer and fasting uh, seasons. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. As a church, we must make the commitment to keep the gospel at the center of all that we do. What's the gospel? The gospel, as simply stated as I can, it's not about what we do, uh, as I said earlier, to please and or appease God. It's a focus on what Christ has done, that we keep going back to what Christ has done on the cross. Out of came out of heaven into our brokenness, lived the perfect life, died um, a criminal's death, taking on the sin of the world, past, present, and future, I can't imagine. What he endured um, physically was like, a, somebody said, a flea bite compared to emotionally and spiritually the weight that he was carrying. That's the gospel. We want to make a com commitment to keep the gospel at the center. Here's an illustration that I often use talking to the churches or just for myself. Picture a wagon wheel with a hub and with spokes. It's really important that we understand what's at the hub. Every church has a hub. And, and, and sometimes I'll ask, what's at the hub for you? Uh, what's at the hub? And for us, the idea is that we need to keep Jesus and the gospel at the hub of the wheel. And then social justice would be one of the really important spokes. Um, and I think that what, what a church places at the hub will determine its destiny. Uh, we must see Jesus as, as, and the gospel at the hub, social justice as an essential spoke. And then that's part of our like refocusing and um, the um, gatherings that we've had to determine, kind of refocus on who we are, that's, that's, that's our calling during this season, is to identify the spokes, the unique spokes um, of Community Covenant Church. The summits, I couldn't remember that. Okay, so what have we seen today? 
Sorry, it's been all dense. Um, what have we seen today? Humankind tends to look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. That's how you could sum up what we've said today. Humankind, we look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And, and it's a really big deal. Uh, it's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for you. It's a challenge for our church. And it really looks like a challenge for our country. Will we go back? Will we dig deeper? Will we, will we, will we stop just cutting off the weed at the, at the surface? And will we, will we take the time as people, as a church, as a country to dig out the roots. Uh, that's, that's what we're talking about.